So hey guys, we're back with another podcast and we are into 2022 and uh, I've been wanting to interview this lady for quite some time. Her name is Donna Harrell and for, the, for those of you in the WWHA, you're going to know Donna already, but uh, she has an amazing story and I can't wait to bring it to you and I've got uh, some information to read about her. Like she's got um, so much knowledge and so much history and research that she's done. You're going to love Donna. And of course, I want to thank everybody at the WWHA. You can find out about the WWHA at wildwesthistory.org. Now, the reason I, I promote the WWHA is because I'm somebody that likes truthful history. I don't like getting into chat groups and hearing about it and getting it secondhand or thirdhand or fourthhand, or maybe it's based on a movie like Tombstone um, or Wyatt Earp or whatever it is. I like factual history. I like deep research history. I like history from the source that's true provenance, that's, that is just, it's truthful, and you can get all that at the WWHA. Now, if you want to be a member, um, uh, I urge you to do so. The memberships are $75 for one year, two years for $125, or three years for $175. Now, I urge you to do the $175, and the reason being is, is you just pay for it, you get out of the way, and there's a big savings by doing three years instead of doing individual years. And so just join for the three years. Now, even though people say, you know, Mike, it's kind of pricey. Well, you know what? It's not really because you get the journal, and the journal is a, is a publication that comes out uh, that is over a quarter inch thick. It's a, like 105, 110 pages long of just pure history, like You've heard me over and over again. There's like no oil valet ads or Bose stereo ads or car ads or whatever, right? It is just true research. And plus it gives you the ability to become connected to some of the finest in, re in Western history. For me, it was my way into meeting John Bosnecker and to Roy Young and to Donna and to Pam Potter and, and Mark Boardman, all these people are in the WWHA. And I was able to connect with them and actually reach out to them and say, I've got questions. And they answered back. Like, where can you, where can you get that? And you can't get that anywhere else. And so again, if you're interested in joining, which I urge you to do so, you can check them out at www.wildwesthistory.org. And this year we have the Western Roundup that's going to be in Rapid City. And um, it's open to everybody. So go on the website and check it out if you want to go to Rapid City. And we're going to go up to Deadwood. And we've got trips planned to Mount Rushmore. And that's all through the WWHA. That's the only place you can get it. Like, I don't understand why you guys aren't joining. You're going to love it. Um, Donna is a board member. And I think she's got, just like Roy and Pam, I think they've got personal parking spots that say, you know, Donna Park's here. And nobody else parked there because she, she'll personally have you towed away. Is that right? Well, that'd be really nice to, to have that, uh, all these different places. But uh, the WWHA, and you're, you're so right, Mike. Uh, there's so many people to meet. And we've talked about it before. Sure. How all the writers and historians and just all sorts of different people interested in so many different things so right. you always have the big ones like the Wyatt Earps and the Jesse Jameses and Billy the Kid and 
uh, Batman Sterson and stuff. Right. But there's so many people that are also into and experts and very well researched on people that rode with those people or people, other brothers, like we've had some articles on some of the other brothers mm-hmm. or other members of the James Younger gang and or Billy the Kid's gang and the uh, regulators and uh, things awesome. on the westward expansion and uh, I and, and the journal that we put out four times a year Roy Young is our editor, and he's just amazing. And it's like buying four books. Right. And so your membership for $75, think of it as you're getting 400-page books a year sent to you in your mailbox. And it's just a great group. So Donna says it, and you should join, and I hope you do, and I hope to see you in Rapid City in 2022. I also want to thank... Um, a good friend of the podcast who is, who's been instrumental in really getting the interviews together and helping me out. And that is Mark Boardman over at the Tombstone Epitaph. Now you guys have heard me talk about the Tombstone Epitaph. It's Arizona's longest running newspaper. Now it's not published in Tombstone, but Mark Boardman does everything digitally, but he brings a newspaper to your hand, to your mailbox. And I come home from work and it'll be sitting on the counter. And I'm like, oh my God, the epitaph is here. And it's a newspaper. And I was reading it today about Wyatt Earp. This, this January's edition is about Wyatt Earp in Seattle. And there's a long article about, the, about Butch Cassidy and uh, his story. There's just, there is so much history in the Tombstone Epitaph. Now, if you want to subscribe, uh, you can do so at tombstoneepitaph.com. And it's just, it's awesome. And again, Tombstone Epitaph, and that's tombstone, the word tombstone, and and epitaph, E-P-I-T-A-P-H.com. And to subscribe is 25 bucks for one year, two years for 45, or three years for 60. I urge you to do the three years because if you do the one year and then you miss a payment, Mark's going to show up at your door and he's going to demand payment. Um, and, and he's angry. Oh, my gosh, if you don't get that money, it, that's that's not true. That's not true one bit. But Mark, Mark is a super great guy, and uh, you definitely want to become a subscriber to the Tombstone Epitaph, and you can do so at tombstoneepitaph.com. So... Uh, Donna Harrell was somebody that a lot of people were sending me notes when I was doing the interviews and the podcasts, and they're saying, you need to interview Donna. And I had seen Donna in 2019 at a TTR event, and that is a Tombstone Territory Rendezvous, which is a history event about Tombstone. Uh, It happens in October, every October, down in Tombstone, and we meet at Shefflin Hall, and it's, oh my God, it's just such a great time. And... I saw Donna speak about the food in Tombstone, and we're going to be talking about the food in Tombstone today, and we're going to talk about Donna. But so many people said, you know, Mike, you need to interview Donna. Like, she's got a crazy story. And not knowing, she's here in Phoenix with me, and I mean, not with me, but she lives here in Phoenix, and um, hopefully we're going to do some live interviews. She's agreed to do some live where we're going to be sitting across from each other, and... um, 
Donna's got an awesome story. I'm going to read some information. She's born and raised, actually born in Clay County, Missouri. She is a descendant of the Younger family. For over 40 years, she has studied the lives of James Younger and the Younger Brothers, as well as the Border War, the Civil War in Missouri. She is a member of the WWHA. She's written articles on the Russellville Bank robbery, Kit and Emma Younger, the Missouri train robbers, uh, quail hunter John Kennedy, the Marlowe Brothers of Texas, the pursuit of the James Younger gang by the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which is crazy. I was reading an article about that in, uh, in the epitaph. She was president of the James Younger Gang organization from 2002 to 2004, and prior to that, she was on the board of directors. Uh, her interest in the Old West has branched into Arizona history, which there's so much. She's an active speaker and a participant in TTR and has done presentations uh, to include accounts of the Battle of the Apache Pass, the death of Johnny Ringo, and what people ate in 1880s Tombstone, and she lives here in Phoenix. So you have, you have a well-rounded background, but before we get into your background, so you were born in Clay County, Missouri, and you're a descendant of the Younger family. Was it a, was it a good thing, the way that you were raised become? Because the reason I asked that is I interviewed Pam Potter a while back, actually just a couple of weeks ago, and she was taught to really hate the Earps because she's a descendant of the McClowry family. You being descendant of the Younger family, was there any positives or negatives to it that maybe when you were brought up, the family said, stay away from, or we don't want you to know? Or was the family open to the fact that you were a Younger descendant? Oh, yeah, it was fine. And, uh, Pam and I also have discussed that and the differences. Was we'll either Jesse James, the James Younger Gang, in all the movies, they're the anti-heroes. They're the uh, main focus of the movies. They're not necessarily portrayed as good guys, but they're not necessarily portrayed as the bad guys. They're the heroes of the movie, uh, the people that you watch the movie for. Same with books. I mean, there's hundreds of Jesse James-related books. And there are Jesse James days in Kearney, Missouri, where Jesse was born and raised. And for a number of years in Lee Summit, Missouri, there was Cole Younger days. And there... The James Farm, it's it's interesting. The James Farm in Kearney, Missouri, it's where Jesse James was born in 1847. That building, the home, was built in the 1820s. It's one of the oldest active homes still remaining in Clay County. It's been around forever. And the home is still there. It's been restored a few times, and but the logs and things are still there. The furnishings, a lot of it is original. And it's been a tourist attraction since Jesse was killed in 1882 and buried 
there in the yard of the farm. Tourists was started coming from the east and from everywhere to go and knock on the door and see where Jesse James lived. And every year the James Farm they put out a notice of all the people that have visited the farm and written in their visitor's book. And they'll tabulate how many people from certain countries or from states. And they just posted in 20, for 2021, they had visitors in all 50 states and 42 countries around the world. Wow, that's crazy. So where I'm going with that is that to be associated with Jesse James, the James Younger Gang, it's not seen as anything bad because even in those days, in their own days, they were folk heroes. They were America's Robin Hood. They had really great press. So, and to grow up in Missouri in that environment it wasn't a problem in any way, shape, and form to say or anything to feel bad about. I know that uh, there are some descendants of the families that have kept it kind of quiet, and they didn't really want to be have focus on it. They didn't hide it, but they didn't broadcast it. But uh, for me, it, it was not a problem. And uh, I had a very good experience with it. And actually, I found out about Jesse James in second grade in school. It was April the 3rd, and my teacher said, well, somebody back in history on this day was assassinated. And... Do you know who that was? And the class is going for people they trying to figure out and uh, made some suggestions. And then she started telling us about Jesse James. And so this was in school and uh, started telling us the history of Jesse a little bit. And so from that point, I decided, hey, yeah, that sounds interesting. And he's a local boy. He grew up just down the road and a little bit. And uh, so then I was visiting my grandparents one weekend. And you know how you do with your grandparents. You tell them what you're interested. Oh, yeah, Jesse James and this and that. And my grandfather says, well, we're related to the Youngers. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And so I started doing a little bit more research and put it all together and the documentation and and stuff. And it's just been a lifelong passion. But so no, I unlike Pam, I haven't had any negative or family negative vibes about being the association. Did the family though when you started researching it, did your family open up and tell the stories? Um, did, and I don't know how close of a descendant you are, you know, I don't know if you're in a direct line or you're off on the family tree over on the right side of the tree or whatever, but 
were they open to the research and did did anybody in your family say, you know, Donna's got a she kind of is digging a little deeper than the rest of us would and she needs to see this and they opened up a trunk and there's all this crazy stuff in there. Boy, I I I have was unlucky in a lot of ways. Uh my great-great-grandmother was a sister of the younger boys, and that's where the connection is. My grandfather um, was born two years after his grandmother, who was Emma Younger Rose, died. And so, but he lived, his mother died when he was about seven. And he his father was a sign painter, their long line of sign painters, and so he traveled a lot. So he left my grandfather and my grandfather's older sister with their grandfather, who was a guy named Kit Rose, who'd been married to the younger. Well, also living with Kit was the old family slave, Sue's. And so my grandfather used to tell me about living with his grandfather and the old family slave, and he would mention various names and stuff. And he had, over the years, forgotten or didn't realize that the grandmother that he didn't know was the younger. And it could be because they had actually divorced uh, Kit and Emma had divorced, and so maybe the grandmother wasn't mentioned a whole lot, and maybe at home. So I had to put a lot of things together from the things that he told me, and uh, census records, and obituaries, and uh, death records, newspaper articles. There were plenty about Kit and Emma and. A few times, uh, one time they were in the newspaper, Emma had shot at Kit. She'd taken after him and shot at him, missed him, but that was in the newspapers. And I was uh, good friends with a dear friend, a younger historian, Wilbur Zink, who sadly has passed now. But he thought that was hilarious and told my husband, he said, see, see, what you've married into (laughs) and uh, stuff. So, no, I had to kind of piece some things together and um, didn't really know that many many of my grandfather's relatives that I knew or anybody that would have had the story, so I had to put it together. But unfortunately, the trunk, the family trunk thing is, is kind of a, a sore point, I guess one of my grandfather's blood aunts had died, and her husband had this big trunk of family photos, family letters, all sorts of things, and he often sold it to a new to a movie studio. Mm. Don't know when. 50s, 60s, don't know, don't know the studio, but instead of giving it to my grandfather, who would have been the next of kin, mm-hmm. 
And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of, I have nightmares about that. That just kills me. That oh, all that information, the <laughs> family pictures and stuff. And see, the Youngers, it was a huge family. Um, the My great-great-grandmother, Emma, and her brothers, their father, Harry Younger, was a large landowner in Cass County and Jackson County, where Kansas City's at. And they were a very wealthy family. And the Civil War in the area kind of decimated the family. They got burned out of, well, Harry Younger was killed by a Union soldier um, in sort of a revenge killing. And then the Youngers, uh, as of the days in Missouri and the Border War and the Civil War, it was huge hatred between Kansans and Missourians. And they were burned out of three farms. And uh, so a lot of their possessions were burned. Uh, and then the family kind of thrown to the four winds a little bit. So there's there's not a lot out there. We're unfortunately not as fortunate as the, uh, the James family who was kept the farm and mm-hmm. kept their possessions. So... It's a little different there. You, I believe Cole Younger has a birthday coming up. Is it not? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Cole and Jim Younger shared the same birth date, just like four years apart. Uh, January 15th, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So all of this is going on as you're growing up. You're starting to research your family history. Was there anything in the family history that in your research that you found surprising that maybe history got wrong or, or did history get it all, all correct? Well, history is always in flux and, uh, the historians, they, back in the day, they relied a lot on family stories or, and I don't necessarily mean like younger family stories or James family stories. It was the next door neighbor's family stories or somebody in the next town's family stories. And so a lot of it is a lot of hearsay and a lot of guesswork or want to be history. And uh, so. There's just a lot about, especially the Youngers, that is not known. I mean, Cole Cole Younger wrote a book, and uh, it's uh, pretty fictionalized. Mm. Uh, He told some stories. I think mm, Civil War-type stories were probably pretty accurate, but after that, kind of Mm -hmm. not. And uh, they didn't leave diaries, and and they, of course, none of the younger boys married, so there were no descendants of the younger boys. And so the Jameses, Jesse James, of course, was killed when his children were very young, and Frank James didn't tell a lot of stories about what they had done to his wife and son. So there's just... 
there's not a lot of firsthand accounts out, out there that are very accurate. And uh, and you have to really piece things together and do the best you can with the information you have and and kind of agreeing with I uh, agree with John Bosnecker that uh, newspapers dot com is the best thing since sliced bread. Right. And finding newspaper accounts and and things and it is kind of difficult on certain people trying to piece things together as far as anything that i found uh surprising about the younger boys uh not really a whole lot there were uh marley brant had purchased some of the letters that wilbur zink had had from an old girlfriend of jim younger's and jim had written to her some letters and Marley had put together a book about um, Jim Younger from his accounts in these letters to his old girlfriend, Cora McNeil. And that brought up a few interesting tidbits and things that need further research and in some way, some contradictions to what Cole said in his autobiography. So the work goes on, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's just a pretty interesting thing. And I I know that some things we'll never know. I mean, it died with them. We'll we'll never know. We'll never be able to prove one way or the other some of the things that have been said. And uh, I think some ways we're just gonna as historians we're just gonna have to live with it and do the best we can with what we got to work with. Mm-hmm. But you know, as far as the roses, Kit and Emma, uh, I was surprised when I found out there was a, no real information on when Emma had died. And uh, I had uh, dates. My grandfather had dates of when his grandmother had was born and died. And it contradicted some of the information that I had that had been published or communications with other younger descendants and the date they had was 1900 and that she had died and that seems to be the year the year that they were divorced and of course back in those days divorce was a way bigger stigma than being imprisoned or being a bank robber and um so I think they had lost touch, and I found out that Emma had been hit by a streetcar in Kansas City in, in 1907, and uh, she died a couple of days later of uh, her injuries. And so I guess that was the biggest thing that surprised me and something that I had not anticipated or knew about. Mm-hmm. So, just for the listener, Donna's already agreed to other podcasts, and we're going to deep dive into the James and the Youngers deeper um, in future podcasts. So, if you're listening to this and I make a switch, you're like, no, why is he changing? We're going to do some deep dives into some other some other items that uh, are important. Um, 
the Civil War era, the the bank robberies. We're going to deep dive into some other areas because she's got a ton of information. And uh, this this podcast is just an overall for you to get to know Donna, and and then we'll go into some deep dives uh, later on in, in 2022. One of the areas that impressed me about Donna was her her knowledge about tombstone history and Arizona history, and she lives here in Phoenix, so it does make it easier for Donna and I to be able to go in and out of Cochise County whenever we want. And one of the things that I had listened about was the food in Tombstone, and I was shocked at what I had what she had said, and then I eventually had read, which was the food in Tombstone was fantastic. Now, we think in our minds, many of us, if you're a, um, a newbie to history or you watch Tombstone and you think, oh my gosh, all they ate was beans and beef, or because Tombstone is so close to the Mexican border that it was tamales and Mexican food and things like that. But in reality, people in Tombstone ate amazingly well expand on that can you can you share some of the things that you've learned because there was so much money coming in and out of tombstone and people were involved you know um, wealth from california the east coast money was coming in investments were being made and somebody like somebody like like a Hearst, for example, would not want to come into Tombstone and eat just beef and beans. They would want the food that they'd been accustomed to. Expand on that, would you please? It was crazy when I decided I got, I'm going to do a shout out to uh, Sherry Moynihan. And she wrote a book, Taste of Tombstone. And it's a really fascinating book uh, about the foods and the restaurant industry and uh, the things that they ate in those days. And then, of course, the newspaper articles, again, newspapers.com. And uh, you find all these advertisings in the newspapers about the different restaurants what they might serve, articles about parties or events at different restaurants, and maybe little blibs about the restaurant owners. And and it was fascinating because if, of us modern people that go to Tombstone, you get burgers, you get pizza, you get maybe the fudge at the uh, the fudge shop. Mm-hmm. And, well, you get big-ass uh, beers at uh, Big Nose Kate's. Yeah, yeah, you get all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And to think that what actually back in the days of 1881, 1882, those were the heydays of Tombstone uh, around the time of the gunfight, maybe a year or so mm-hmm. before, a year or so later. It was, those were the boom times. And Tombstone had the biggest population of any city from, like, St. Louis to San Francisco. And tens of thousands of people lived there. 
And all of these people had come in. They, yes, she had the miners, she had the prostitutes, she had the cowboys, you had kind of a little bit more of a rough crowd. But you also had people of culture, the mine owners, people traveling through, business people, immigrants, uh, workers that worked there. There was a large Chinese community that that lived in Tombstone, immigrants from all over. Uh, one of the original restaurants there when the town started with the miners and people coming in, they were all tent businesses. And even the restaurants had tents. And in fact, Ike Clanton owned a tent restaurant for a while. I don't think he'd owned it for very long. It was called the Star Cafe. And uh, then they started building uh, permanent structures and stuff. And uh, there were some German immigrants that had bakeries and uh, fancy uh, breads and people would buy the breads. And then they supplied the breads to the hotels. There were some very fancy hotels, um, almost like five-star hotels in Tombstone, the Grand Hotel, and then they would have restaurants because a lot of people were single men. The miners got paid really well for their day. They worked really hard for that money, but they got paid very well. So they had plenty of money for all sorts of their three meals a day. They would, so a lot of the restaurants would sell tickets or tokens for certain meals so a miner would buy tokens or tickets for so many days and get a free meal almost like you would get now your frequent diner card and they would get the same sort of thing and uh, breakfast would be from five cents to 15 cents and all sorts of breakfast items uh lunch and dinner Lunch a lot of times was fairly simple, just some cold cuts and sandwiches. And then dinner was up to like 50 cents. And um, obviously Tombstone doesn't have a lot of, it has some agriculture. And you've got the San Pedro River there that was pretty big back then, not so much now. And so some game. So most of the foods had to be imported. And the closest railroads for a while were Tucson. And then it got a little closer to Benson. And then they would have to do express wagons from the railroads into Tombstone. And they would bring in fresh meat, fruits, vegetables from California uh, fish and lobsters, oysters were really huge. The oysters, I mean, virtually every restaurant had some form of oysters that they served, and they would get those from California or they would get them from Mexico. There were some delicacies from Europe that were brought in from the East Coast and brought into uh, Tombstone. There were some French people that came in and they made some French restaurants 
and they serve French food, and the menus were in French for a while. And that seems like a kind of an odd thing. You can just imagine uh, Ike Clanton and Curly Bill Brocious trying to figure out the menu in French, and it kind of gives you an interesting idea. Now, all this food was brought in, and, um, of course, they needed ice. Didn't have the refrigerator and the big refrigeration plants that we do now. So ice was brought in on trains, packed in straw, and to keep it somewhat cold. And then later, there was a refrigeration plant in... uh, tombstone which mike i know you like to go visit addresses and stuff and i'll have to find the address of where the ice plant was there in tombstone so you can i it's not there anymore but you at least know where it's at Hmm. and um so they had ice and ice houses for storage of the different meats that they would bring in of course some of the there were meat markets and uh of course Beef was king in the area. There was a lot of beef, um, American beef, as they called it, or Mexican beef. And that was usually the Mexican beef is when the the cows were accidentally brought across on purpose, brought across the border to supplement some herds. And uh, so that was big in the area again the fresh seafood uh there was oysters brought in from the east coast and the french cuisine there was a big french restaurant the mason dory was a first class french restaurant and i think there's a little sign marker there on the street because it was at 409 allen street and then there was another one a restaurant at 510 Allen Street, and they said they had uh, French a French restaurant. So, and some of them, the Mason Dory advertised in one of their newspaper articles that they only employed French cooks, wow. and uh, they had uh, their French food. And of course, there was a huge Chinese community. So the Chinese workers were not only laundries which or laborers, but they were cooks in different restaurants. And, and then they had their own restaurants, and they could serve Chinese food and Western food as well. And uh, that was kind of interesting. Um, so let me ask for you dessert, Let me ask you. Go ahead. You went back, you were talking about the rail line coming into Benson. And and I know the rail line eventually worked its way to Fairbank. And then there was a rail line into Tombstone, but that was in the late early 1900s. But the the activity between Benson and Tombstone on the stage roads had to have been crazy. Like it just it would have to be almost like a freeway, just back and forth and back and forth that oh, they were yeah. bringing all this food because, you know, we talk about 
the cowboys were stealing cattle, and that was for the beef, and going down into Mexico and stealing cattle and bringing them back up into areas like the McClowries had a ranch over near what's now present-day Elfrida and McNeil. But they were doing all this, but the travel and the expense and the money to bring all of this in and all this fresh food had to have been crazy. So there was a lot of activity in town just feeding miners and people in town and dignitaries that were coming in to town to see their interests, to see their mining operations. It employed a lot of people, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they had all kinds of different express uh, groups that uh, would bring in just the food and all the, I'm sure, all the supplies to build the buildings and to furnish all these fine homes and fine uh, hotels that were in town. And just then the people, immigrants coming in and people just wanting to visit Tombstone because it was, it was an interesting small little community that in geographically small that had just everybody, anything and everybody. You had the red light district and you had the fine dining. They had an orchestra. They had a full orchestra, and they had fine entertainment. The Birdcage Theater, we think of it today as maybe a little bit more body or things, but they had high-class entertainment and Shakespearean mm-hmm. actors, and right. uh, they had the low-brow entertainment, and then the next day they would have something really fancy entertainment mm-hmm. in there. And... Uh, Tombstone was a very, if you get into the history of Tombstone beyond the 30-second gunfight, it's extraordinarily interesting of all the things going on. They had their own baseball team. They would play baseball in Tombstone and um, music and then all of, like I said, the fine dining. And um, it was it was a very interesting interesting place and um but you're right the, uh, the trails back and forth to benson they were going constantly uh multiple times a day every day of the year trying to feed all these people all of these fine things because when you got i i've got a menu kind of a usual menu of things and they might have for on the menu for dinner roast duck roast venison uh uh imported ham oyster soup columbia river salmon leg of lamb beef scalloped antelope lobster salad then they would have um, for different uh, vegetables, and then they would have dessert, and then you would have, and dessert in those days was kind of like fruits and nuts and small things, and then they would have pies and stuff. And so they would have asparagus and corn and turnips and 
English plum pudding and pumpkin pies and mince pies and fruit pies and things. And so this was not, yeah, just not your beans on toast. And Mm -hmm. another interesting thing in the foods there were ice cream. There were a lot of ice cream parlors then as now uh, up and down Allen Street and Fremont Street. And, of course, it's interesting how they would have to make the ice cream. You couldn't go down to Safeway and get a carton of ice cream. They had to make the ice cream, and they had the little molds of ice cream, and it was certainly a lot different. A lot of interesting flavors that they would put in you know, pineapple and and that is raisin and different things that they would make ice cream. And the church socials then and now would have ice cream. They would bring ice cream. And um, so, yeah, and then I, I noticed a lot of um, advertising for, like, holidays. And... Uh, they would have a Christmas tree and social at the Catholic church and they would have all of this foods and things, or they would uh, have your Thanksgiving turkey dinner at the Can Can restaurant. And, and so, and then sometimes they would list the menu of what they would were going to be serving there. And it was just an amazing amount of foods and different kinds of foods. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's it's just Tombstone is such an, in Cochise County as well. Right. Just so interesting. Like I said, once you get past the 32nd gunfight battle um, on Fremont, then you, it's a whole new world. In that five, ten years of booming when before the floods came in with the right. flooded the place out and, right. and everybody Left. the boom busted right so you know a, a couple of things you mentioned about the ice, and for those of you who don't know, I do refrigeration for a living, and so I'm always intrigued by it, and i actually I actually collect ice boxes from the late eighteen hundreds. I have five oh. of them in my home it's they're big and they're bulky, and I'm always on the hunt for a new one. And I'm I'm a antiquer, antiquer, and I'm always looking through Facebook and want ads and stuff for my next icebox. And 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 I love them. They're they're a cool part of history, and so I can see in my mind the ice coming in from northern part of Arizona and other places. The other thing too is if you as we're talking, if you want to see refrigeration during that period at its finest, if you get a chance, go into the Palace Hotel in Prescott. If you go into the Palace, not hotel, but the Palace Saloon, and you go to the far end of the bar, there is an 8 to 10 foot tall ice box. That's one of the largest I've ever seen. And it has now been converted modernly to modern refrigeration uh, to a beer cooler. But during that period, uh, when ice was being used for refrigeration, it was one of the biggest ice boxes um, in the Western United States, and it's it's huge. 
Um, they've lovingly kept it restored and it's in original condition. But if you ever get a chance to go to the Prescott or go to Prescott, uh, go to the Palace Saloon. It's next to the uh, St. Michael's Hotel and go to the far end of the bar. When you go through the double, the double doors, go through them, the, the butterfly doors, go through them and go all the way to the end of the bar and you'll see this huge ice box. It's, it's gorgeous. Oh, the the other th- yeah. the other thing well, it looks like looks like we're gonna have to meet up in Prescott for lunch. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I'm always game for for the palace. The other thing too to remember is if you really want to know more about and this is just a plug for my friend Nancy Sosa. Nancy Sosa wrote a book called Tombstone: A Quick History. It is all about the different things in Tombstone, including if you didn't know, Tombstone has a swimming pool. Uh, it also had a horse racing rink. Or a horse track, not a rink, but a horse track that is on Allen Street on on the way to uh, the Tombstone Monument Ranch into the Shiflin Memorial. There is a uh, if you can if you actually go onto Google Earth, you can see uh, the horse track that's there. And they had county fairs, and they had betting, and they had food, and they had all sorts of stuff. So what we think of as Tombstone with just the OK Corral, Tombstone was actually a bustling city that had the finest things in life and, like you said, restaurants and fine food and plays and, and you know, dances and they had uh, the horse track and they had fairs. I mean, it was just a fantastic place. It was, it's just a, such a vibrant town. But I, I do tell people when they come to Tombstone, like there's more to Cochise County than Tombstone. Like don't spend all of your time in Tombstone. Explore Cochise County because so much Tombstone history is out in Cochise County, uh, including Johnny Ringo's grave, the town of Gleason, Cortland, Cochise Hotel up in, up in Cochise. My friend Phil Gessert owns that. Head up to Wilcox, and Wilcox is the has a cemetery there that the only herb buried in Tombstone, which is Warren Herb, is buried there in Wilcox. And of course, you know you have Johnny Ringo's grave, the town of Bisbee, Douglas. I mean, there's just so much to see. So we're going to slowly wrap up today's podcast with Donna. Is is there something about in your research and the food, or did you pretty much cover it all that you found out that would really was game-changing towards the history of Tombstone? Well, I think just the whole thing, I I had no idea. Um, I live in Arizona, but my background has been almost siloed with the James Younger gang and uh, in the organization and stuff. And we kind of because our son was going to school and the James Younger Gang's meetings were September, October. So that was a problem. I knew a lot of the, was the Nola and Wola people. And then it, it kind of morphed into the Wild History Association and, and we decided to join so we could keep up our relationships and their meetings were in July. So that was not a problem right. as far as with a school age child. And, uh, I sort of expanded my interests and there was a lot more to the old West. And my husband's from Texas. So he brought in love of Texas history and, uh, we got involved 
with the Tombstone Territory Rendezvous in October, and I just had to expand my interest because, quite frankly, I was one of those people. Tombstone was the 32nd gunfight and the OK Corral, and, and that was Tombstone until I really got into it. So, yeah, to find out that Tombstone was just this major metropolis, fine dining, fine people, uh, fancy, uh, just city, mini city. Uh, I think the whole thing, I, I was totally blown away by the foods. Just, I had no idea. It was just a complete I kept reading all these menus from these different hotels and restaurants and stuff. And I was just like, wow, I even had to Google sometimes and say, what even is this? I didn't even know what kind of food this is. And um, so, no, it was just the whole thing, just, just so interesting. And I've learned a lot with the TTR and you go to the meetings and you focus on this area. And we usually have a theme every year. And so all these different historians certainly know way more than I do about Tombstone and Cochise County. I'm just now getting into it mm-hmm. the last three or four years. And um, it's just it's just very interesting to hear about, like this last one was on the military in Cochise County. And stuff before, during, and after the Civil War, not only with the uh, Apaches and and mm, other crazy. groups and military people that were in the area and some of the forts and stuff. And we had the life in Tombstone, which is, I think, the theme of the year that I did the one on uh, foods. Right. And uh, I think the year before was the myths and legends of lies of Tombstone, mm. which, of course, there's many. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a good group to to go and hang out with and learn so much and i could imagine if there was a a prescott territory rendezvous or or somewhere else that you would probably learn a whole lot more about those areas that that we don't know about right well folks if you want to know more about tombstone um, and some of the stuff that we were talking about, please look up Tombstone at Quick History by Nancy Sosa. Um, you can, it, it's, uh, it's a great book. Um, it's, it's something that you definitely want to read. And if you, if you can't find it anywhere, email me on my blue collar ad, email address, which is HVAC Reefer Guy, H-V-A-C-R-E-F-E-R Guy, G-U-I at gmail.com and I can connect you if you want to get that book and uh, it's really a fantastic book that talks about things in Tombstone that you may not know. Uh, Nancy's born and raised in Tombstone so she has a different perspective uh, being grown up in the town and seeing it every single day of her life and uh, and she still lives nearby and she's involved in Tombstone history but again it's called Tombstone A Quick History by Nancy Sosa. If you want more information about the WWHA, you can do so at 
wildwesthistory.org. I really do urge you to take a look at it and become a member. I'm a member. It's connected me with Donna and all the podcasts that you've, I think we had 13 or 14 podcasts in 2021 with Western history. That all started because of my membership with the Wild West History Association and getting those connections that I wouldn't have had a chance to get, including John Bosnecker and interviewing Marshall Trimble and Bob Bosbell and all those people. They were all directly because of my membership in the Wild West History Association. Again, to become a member, go to wildwesthistory.org. And to, um, if you want to, uh, again, to hold history in your hand in a newspaper, that check out my friends uh, Mark Boardman over at the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. I really, you know, if you do the three-year membership, that saves you 15 bucks. I was kidding about Mark showing up at your house, but you know what? He's such a great guy. He, they put so much effort, him and Eric Wright, they put so much effort into the newspaper, and it's such a great read. And in the middle of every Tombstone Epitaph, you get a little bit of Bob Bo's Bell. He puts his artwork in there, and his artwork is phenomenal. His Western history artwork is crazy great. And he kills a little story about it, about each piece of history and each piece of art that he's included. There's just so much. And again, if you like this podcast and you're listening on iTunes, give it a five-star rating or a one-star, whatever. Just be truthful in your rating. Um, that helps me out. A lot. It actually helps in the distribution of it. You can hear this podcast on Spotify as well as the iHeartRadio app. Um, and again, I, I really want to thank Donna. And we're going to do um, some live one-on-one podcasts instead of the way we're doing it now through a phone because you're going to find out the dynamic definitely changes when Donna and I are going to sit across the table from each other. And we're going to break down a little bit more about the Younger Gang, about the bank robberies, about... Uh, the James, uh, Jesse James and her knowledge, because that's really where she's got a lot of information and uh, we'll be able to deep dive into those subjects. Again, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Oh, and remember the food banks out there. If you've got a food bank near you, you know, a dollar usually makes about seven uh, seven meals or feeds seven people. So you give 50 bucks, that's 300, 350 people. Like if you have a food bank near you, reach out and help them a little bit. I mean, oh my gosh, they do so great. For me, my charity of choice here at the Cochise County Travels is St. Mary's Food Bank in Phoenix for $7. Like I said, they feed seven um, uh, seven people, or no, 49 people, 49 meals. It's crazy. I'm not a math guy, so sorry. But we give a lot to the, the St. Mary's Food Bank. And then just be good to each other. Just be good people. Help each other out. There's neighbors that need some help. Gosh, just, just help them out. You'll feel good. They'll feel good. And you know, you're going to be doing something great for your community. So until next time, we'll see you soon. And thanks again for listening.